Good morning, church. I'm Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here at Third. Before we get into this morning's sermon, I just want to uh, make you all aware that one of the saints at Third, Barry Saunders, passed this week. There's going to be a service, a witness to the rec- resurrection for him on Tuesday at 10 a.m., and there'll be a reception to follow. We just wanted to make sure that you were all aware of that. We begin a new sermon series this week called Among American Gods. It is a series that examines the Ten Commandments and how they confront the idols of our American life. One way that you could see the first five books of the Bible, which, which we call the Pentateuch, one way to see the Pentateuch is this. It's God's answer to a world of disordered worship, a world of false Worship. And what we would discover in Exodus 19 and 20 is that God's answer to a world of disordered worship is a people and a life. His covenant people living his covenant life in the world. And what is true of Israel is true of us, his church. We too live in a world of disordered worship. And God's grace to that fallen and falling world is the same. His answer is the same. A covenant people, covenant life. Jesus captured this in his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, where he referred to his disciples as a city on a hill whose light goes forth and was not to be hidden. He said, let your light shine before all men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This, this covenantal life lived in a world of disordered worship is what we're going to explore over the next few months. And what we hope is that together we'll discover the beauty and the depth of God's counter-covenantal life. And as we do that, confront the American gods that seek to choke and extinguish that life before it ever takes root in us. Our text for this week is Exodus chapter 19. Uh, I want to make sure to point out that uh, I stand on the shoulders of Tim Keller and Alec Mateer and Doug Stewart, who have greatly shaped um, the way that um, I understand and present uh, the stuff that we're talking about today. We are in Exodus chapter 19. This is the chapter where Moses and Israel arrive at Mount Sinai after three months of journey through the desert from Egypt. This is where they have come to receive the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are not in this chapter. But what we find in Exodus 19 is vital to understanding the commandments. Exodus 19 is the context of those commandments. And the Ten Commandments are not some disembodied ethical code They're an expression of relationship. They are fueled by grace, by love. And Exodus 19, it's going to show us the contours of that relationship, the contours, the shape of what covenant life with God can look like. So you can read along in your bulletin the scripture for today, starting in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, 
they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully, keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is no one like you. You alone have the words of eternal life. To you alone, we turn this morning for a word that might change our lives. And so we ask for those of us who need to be challenged, challenge us. For those that need to be healed, to touch us. For those of us that need to be shepherded this morning, would you guide us through the beauty and the gift of your word? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three things I want us to observe about the contours of the covenant life. The first is this. There is an order of grace at work in the life of Israel. The first is the order of grace. If you can understand what is going on in Exodus chapter 19, you can understand the entire Bible. I'm going to say that again because it's true. If you can understand this passage, you can understand the entire Bible, the gospel, and all of redemptive history. I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that. This is true. And what you'll see in in this story are three elements that reveal the order of grace. It's a sequence of elements, and in particular, their order. The sequence that they happen in is important. Not just for understanding the gospel, for understanding the script, but understand how God relates to human beings. Let's look at them. The first is that you will see a saving act of the Lord. That will be followed by obedience in response to his salvation. And then third, the blessing that obedience brings. That's the order of grace. A saving act of God's mercy, obedience in response, and then a blessing that follows obedience. You see the saving acts of the Lord established at the very beginning of this passage. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings, how I brought you to myself. It's past tense. This is what I've done already. The foundation of what's to come rests on this, that I have saved you. God rescued his people from bondage as slaves in Egypt. And as they left, they were pursued by Pharaoh's army. And then God, in his power, drowned Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea. 
And then God led them by a pillar of smoke and fire for three months into the desert until they arrive here at Sinai. Now, let me ask a question. What, what at any point could Israel have done to deserve this? What could they have done? What could they contribute to their emancipation? Absolutely nothing. They were completely unable to save themselves. They could not deliver themselves. They didn't even have to fight to leave Egypt. They literally just walked out and looted the place as they left. On eagles' wings. That's what God's trying to say to them. I have saved you by my grace and my grace alone apart from anything that you could have done for yourselves. And now I'm bringing you to me. In response to the saving grace, so there's an order. The first is God acts to save. We can just call that grace. The order is grace, obedience, blessing. In response to God's saving grace, he then says, okay, now, present tense, this is what I've done for you. The foundation is my grace. Now, obey me fully. Keep my covenant. Again, important to notice the sequence. Grace first, then obedience. God did not say to Israel, okay, here are the Ten Commandments. He didn't then wait for them to decide whether or not they wanted to obey them and then obey them. And after they obeyed them, then God said, okay, now, now I'll save you. That is not what happened in our story. Remember, it's grace before obedience, not obedience before grace. And this is why this is so important, because one of these is the gospel, and one of them is heresy. One of them is the gospel, one of them is is legalism. Now, the gospel says this. The gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Grace before obedience. Legalism says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And you could see two human beings, one living by grace and the gospel, one living by legalism. And if you looked at them on the external, just by the external features, just on the outside, they would look largely the same. They would look like someone who was keeping the Ten Commandments, probably. But internally, they could not be more different. The one who's been saved first And then obeys, operates out of love. The one who obeys first and then demands acceptance, they operate out of fear. Always keep the order of grace right. It is grace that leads to obedience as a response. And we see in this text, leads to blessing. There are three blessings, actually, in this passage. Um, before we do that, I just want to highlight this, this, this moment of intimacy that is happening here. Twice, God says to Israel, out of all of the nations of the earth, you, you, you're mine. All of this is mine, and out of all of it, what I'm saying is that I want you. Every night when our boys go to bed, we have a bedtime liturgy. And at some point, I will say to them, I'll have to snap because they're eight and five. So I'll have to snap to get there to say, 
look at me with your face, look at me with your face, and I'll say to them, of all the children in the world, only you two are mine. That is the kind of intimacy that God is speaking to Israel. Of all the nations of the world, I want you. I want you. And these three blessings emerge. Three words or phrases. The first is treasure, then a holy nation, and then a kingdom of priests. And they really build on one another. The first, treasure, it's a Hebrew word. It does not refer to all of the wealth that a king or a nation would have had. It's a word that actually refers to the uh, private and personal wealth of a king. It's as if God is saying to Israel, you are the portion that I want to keep just for myself. His treasured possession. So we could treasure each other. He calls them a holy nation. What, what God is saying here is that he wants his people to be a completely different kind of human society. One ordered by grace. In the New Testament, uh, this gets fleshed out even more. It's called the new humanity. I mean, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is really talking about the fulfillment of what what God is speaking about as a holy nation here, that, that we would be so filled with the light of God's glory that it would shine throughout the world. And as they interact with us and they see our life and they come into contact with us, they will come into contact with God himself. A treasure, a holy nation. And the last is a kingdom of priests. What, what do priests do? What does it mean to be a priest? Well, priests are the ones who have access to God. But why? What is the purpose of their priesthood? It is to help people come into God's presence. And so part of this blessing is missional at its heart. Priests are mediators. They're the ones who help bring people to God. But not just Moses and Aaron and their family, but everyone who's a part of Israel will be a a priest and participate in this priestly life. And here's what God's saying in this, this idea of blessing in Exodus 19. He's saying this, the greatest blessing in this covenant life is that I am going to teach you how to be like me. That's the, that's the purpose of the Ten Commandments. They're not just disembodied rules. They are God's attempt to say to his people, I'm going to teach you what it's like to be me. This is, this is our hope for you, for us as a church. What, 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 kind, what kind of covenant community could we be, Third Church, if we got the order of grace right? That we, we would realize that we have this relationship of treasured love with God and, and that we are a new humanity, a holy nation, and the light of the world. And, and what he's saying is that you will actually bring the world into contact with my life. It is a blessing of missional covenant life with God. This, this is the, you may not know this, I hope you know this, this is the entire, our entire parish ministry and parish groups are built on this hope, <laughs> built on this foundation, that, that we can live together covenant missional life to bless the world, to bless our neighbors, to bless our city. And I know this may, may be a significant paradigm shift for us historically as a church. You need to know it is not a paradigm shift for the kingdom. 
God's desire is not that people will come into contact with his life in this building or through people like me, pastors or staff. His vision is that heaven and earth would meet through you in the the normal and ordinary parts of your lives, through you, your spouses, your ratty and sweet kids. (laughs) These would be the avenues of the life of God in the world. The first thing that we see in Exodus 19 is that the covenant life with God is ordered by grace. The second is this, that God's grace does not diminish his glory. We're not going to read the rest of Exodus 19, but I'm going to talk about what happens. So about three days later, after three days of ritual consecrating themselves to get ready to meet God, the people actually come out to Sinai and they meet with God. And what they see is terrifying to behold. Peals of thunder, spears of lightning and flame. A dense, smoky, gloomy darkness blankets the mountain itself. If any animal comes near the mountain and touches it, it dies. If a human being comes close to the mountain, you have to stone it or they die. If a priest comes before God tells them, they die. It is terrifying. It was so unnerving that the author of Hebrews, looking back to Exodus chapter 19, said, even Moses, the greatest man of the Old Testament, trembled with fear. This covenant Lord is not some warm and fuzzy God. I wish I could tell you this is the only passage in the Bible where this happens. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I could tell you that to be encouraging. It just gets worse. Uh, in Job, he's a hurricane and a tempest. Uh, all throughout the Pentateuch, he's a blazing flame. Look, God is so holy in places of the Bible, just his messengers freak people out. Read, read Ezekiel 1. People still don't know what Ezekiel saw <laughs> in Ezekiel 1. Angels with six sets of wings. In the book of Revelation, there is a, uh, uh, the worship leader is a creature with four heads. Terrifying. God is so holy in the scriptures. There are stories where just being where he used to be can mess with your, mess with your mind. We think of Moses in the cleft of the rock. You can't even really see God fully, but God's just going to pass by. In the New Testament, he's called a consuming fire. Jesus in Revelation is said to have blazing eyes of fire, a sword coming out of his mouth. Covenant Lord is not a warm and fuzzy God. He is holy and terrifying. Have you ever been in the presence of someone whose greatness was just, was just like overwhelming? Or, or just, just by being in their presence was, was terrifying? Not because they were malicious, but just because of who they were. This has happened a few times for me in my life. One of them was about 20 years ago when I drove three and a half hours from Greensboro, North Carolina to Wilmington, North Carolina to ask Sue's parents for her hand in marriage. I was terrified to ask them for their blessing. I was terrified that they're good people. They're good, they're good in-laws. But they held my future in their hands. 
if that meeting did not go well, the next five, six decades of my life would not go well. Some of you are living that. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. So what I hoped would be a a brief 15-minute encounter turned into two and a half hours of what can only be described as hostile negotiations. (laughs) Um, I I knew really early things weren't going to go well when Mr. Fry asked me, um, how was your portfolio? And I said to him, well, I'm, I'm not an artist. <laughs> I said, I'm not referring to that kind of portfolio, Derek. Oh, you mean a financial portfolio? Oh yeah, I don't have one of those either. <laughs> like, like, this does not get better for me. Uh, that's how it started, okay? It started about a conversation about my non-existent financial portfolio. Two and a half hours later, I left with a Maybe. No, no, I got, wait, I got waitlisted to my own engagement. Absolutely. <laughs> I was so shaky and exhausted. Sue bas- took my keys from me. I was like, I am driving home. You're not going to make it. I slept for three and a half hours straight. I was exhausted. Spoiler, they eventually said yes. <laughs> I love, I love Tim Keller on this. This is what Tim Keller says about situations like that, when we're in the presence of someone who's great and it overwhelms us. Keller says this, if getting into the presence of just human superlativeness decimates you, what must it be like to get into the presence of God himself? Why is God so terrifying? Why is his holiness so scary? This is why as he draws near to you and to I, he is revealed. He reveals himself. And when he reveals himself, he reveals us. And we are seen for who we really are. Sinful, craven, selfish creatures. At our best. Unmasked, exposed before the glory of God. And that is terrifying. John Newton says, no one ever discovered that they were a sinner by being told. They need to to be shown. I want you to understand what's happening at Sinai. God isn't showing off. He is showing us who he is and who we are. What's happening at Sinai is this. God is just being himself. He's not trying to scare Israel or scare you. He's trying to dwell with them in a way that won't destroy them because he loves them. That's what's happening at Sinai. Have you ever wondered, why is it covered in smoke? Why is there smoke all over this mountain? It's not to diminish his glory. It's not to throw it away. It's to suppress it. It's to shroud it. The smoke is there to protect them so that they might move, even if it's a few more steps closer to the presence of the God who loves them. Covenant life is ordered by grace, but his grace does not diminish his glory. Third thing that we learn from Exodus 19 about covenant life is this. We need a mediator. We need a mediator between God and us. Because his grace does not diminish his glory, Israel has a problem. And so do we. God will never stop being holy. And he will never stop drawing near to you. The unapproachable is always approaching you because he loves you. So how is this going to work? 
The answer is a mediator. Moses in Exodus 9 is a mediator. He is the one who closes the distance between the parties. God says something, he goes and tells Israel. Israel says something, he goes and tells God. He's the one who's closing the gap. Uh, Moses has perhaps like the worst job description uh, ever. This is literally his job description as a mediator is this. He it needs to keep the people from dying while they meet with God. That is, that is his mediation job. To keep them from dying while they meet with God. You realize pretty quick that um, this isn't going to last. Like, this isn't going to be good enough. Moses' mediation is not going to be good enough. Why? What did the text tell us God wants? Does he want a relationship where, oh, okay, he, he just won't break out and kill sinful people around him? Is that what he asked for? He wanted what? A treasured, loving relationship. He wants us on his lap. He wants us with him. Sometimes I think children are brilliant. Sometimes I think they're not. Um, But sometimes I think they're brilliant. My son Fisher and Jeremiah, we were driving home from church one Sunday. And I don't know if they studied this specific passage or if it was, they were just talking about God's attributes. But we started talking about, they talked about Sinai. I wanted to know more about it because it scared the mess out of them um, that God's presence would be like this. And we talked about it, and I tried to encourage them to talk about how, how God's presence, actually in the New Testament, it's not just on a mountain, but that by the Holy Spirit, it could be inside of you. They did not like that at all. <laughs> like, they did not like that at all. Why? Because they were scared. I remember, I think it was Remy that said, I don't want that inside of me. <laughs> I don't want that inside of me. I think about that from a kid's perspective. Sinai, peals of thunder and fire and trumpets and quaking. I don't want that inside of me. But here's what's so brilliant about my kids. They get Exodus 19 because that is precisely what God wants. God doesn't want to just draw near on a mountain. He wants Sinai in your heart. He wants the presence of God in us. How do you do that? How do you get Sinai into a human heart? Well, for that to happen, you need a better Moses. We need a much better mediator. And that is precisely what Hebrews 12 tells us that we have. Read with me. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. The author of Hebrews says, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to God, the judge of all, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to, this is crucial, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What in the world does that mean? When Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel in the fourth chapter of the Bible, one of the most tragic stories, four chapters in, a brother raises up and kills a brother. And what we discover is this, the blood of Abel, it cried out from the ground to God for vengeance. And what the author of Hebrews has the audacity to say here is that that there was another man who was like Abel, who did not deserve to die. He is the mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And God's awful holiness came down upon him for you and for me. The thunder and the lightning and the, and the, and the, 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 the fire and the flame came upon him for you and for me. The smoke was rolled back and God's wrath consumed him for you and for me. But unlike Abel, the blood of Jesus 
does not cry out to God for vengeance. It cries out to God for mercy and for, and for grace for you and for me. Jesus is the mediator we need. He's the ultimate mediator because he was glory and grace. Full stop. He wasn't gracious. He wasn't glorious. He was the things themselves. He was the fullness of grace and glory. And without him, there is no covenant life. There is no hope in the world. The priesthood that matters is not yours and mine. It's not Moses's and Aaron's. It is Jesus who has established God's new and everlasting covenant in his blood to bring Sinai into our hearts and to bring us home to God. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we confess you are a terrifying and beckoning God. There's no one like you. And there is only one mediator between God and man, and it is the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for us. Jesus, we confess our need for you today. We are unworthy vessels. We are craven, selfish, broken. Without you, there's no covenant, no life, no hope. But in you, but in you, we are being built into a temple, a place where God dwells. And so we ask with humility, would you please, today and over the next months, would you teach us how to be like you? Would you teach us your life, please, that we might know you and be treasured by you, and that we might bring that life to this world who so desperately needs it. In Jesus' name, amen.